As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, uh, we just can't get away from semiconductors. <laughs> you know, I thought uh, we were going to end it with our uh, five-episode series, but the people are clamoring for more chips, Tracy. That's just a fact. Can't get, can't get away from it. Yeah, it's one of those, like, just when you thought you were out, they pull you back in kind of things. Yeah. Um, okay, so by popular request, this is a bonus episode to our semiconductor series. It's going to be a little bit different to the other ones because we're going to be talking about a new technology, a new sort of, how do I explain this? Well, I guess it's an open source hardware technology that could have a big impact on the chips industry and the way things have traditionally been done. Right. So a lot of our discussion has sort of talked about a few like basic business models. I mean, we've talked about Intel and the sort of integrated um, chip design and fab model. Foundry versus fab. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fabless semiconductor companies, which have given rise to the contract manufacturer, uh, Taiwan Semi, which is sort of the ultimate fab. So we've sort of like um, got this sort of like broad contours of the industry. But in terms of like interesting new technologies or different directions or totally different models of where how things could go, still more to be discovered. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, someone told us that we had to talk to this particular company because they were one of the leaders in trying to commercialize this uh, open source hardware idea. It's called Risk Five. It's uh, well, let me see if I can pull it up. It's R I S C and then Five Risk Five. So. What we're going to do is actually learn about what the technology is and then dive in a little bit to what it might mean for existing chip makers and how the whole ecosystem of semiconductors actually works. I can't wait. I don't know anything about any of this stuff, so I just want to learn more. Yeah. Okay. We're all learning together. So without further ado, let's bring on Chris Latner. He's the president of product and engineering over at Sci5. He's also a a longtime tech guy and uh, quite famous in the industry for reasons that we will get in. So, Chris, welcome to Oddlots. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Could you uh, could you maybe give us a snapshot, the, the elevator pitch for RISC-V uh, before we begin? Sure, sounds great. Let's start with what, what is RISC-V. 
So when you start talking about these companies, companies like Intel or ARM or AMD, things like this, they generally make processors. And so the processor in your computer, uh, its job is to run software. And there's this complicated dance that happens between the software and the hardware. And the thing that mediates it, the thing that lives in between these two worlds, is a thing called an instruction set. That instruction set is often proprietary. And so um, with Intel, for example, they'll use an instruction set called x86. Um, ARM has a set of instruction sets that they named after themselves. They have the ARM instruction set. Um, there are many, many of these things that have existed over the years. A company called MIPS. Um, I remember MIPS. The, uh, a company you may remember ages ago called Sun had an instruction set called Spark. And many of these things existed. And they were designed for different, different configurations. Now, these have all worked. And these are, have been a good thing. And obviously, we have a lot of successful computers today. Um, but that, there's a problem. <laughs> the problem is that the software and the hardware last longer than the companies do sometimes. And so MIPS, for example, is in uh, bankruptcy these days. Sun kind of went away and Spark is a, a, in a different world. And so one of the challenges that you end up having as a device manufacturer, as a software provider, is that you need something that will survive. <laughs> and you know, companies in general go through changes and, um, you know, as an industry, it's always evolving. It's a fast-paced world. Now, there, there's another challenge with this, which is also when you have a company that's tied to a specific instruction set that they create, you, you only have a single provider. This can sometimes be limiting if you're building a series of devices around one company's technology, both if they go away, but also you don't have as much market pressure pushing them to innovate and pushing them to, uh, you know, uh, have reasonable charges and rates and things like this. So RISC-V is a different approach to this. Instead of saying it's a proprietary interface between hardware and software, RISC-V is an open standard. And so it's you can think of it as an open source kind of instruction set, which allows many different implementations of hardware to work with all the software. And so in this, in this, in this vein, you could see it as something like... Uh, TCPIP, which is an open standard for networking, or you could see it as Linux, which is an open yeah. standard for, for uh, software um, in the Unix world and things like this. And so that's really what RISC-V is, is it's an old idea about this interface between hardware and software. But the new thing about it is that it's uh, an open standard and it also has a fresh new design that really learns from what has happened in the industry. And it, it's just technically better in most ways. So just to be clear, your company, Sci-5, is it manufacturing chips or is it just creating this software layer from which others could theoretically then build chips? Great question. So if, if I look backwards, RISC-V started, started at the University of Berkeley. Yeah. And so it's about 10 years old. It started in a research lab. And, you know, initially they were just building an instruction set to support academic research, support some of the projects that they were interested in. And that, that became a movement <laughs> where a lot of people agreed that they needed a standardized system and that allowed people to do hardware research without having to do all the software work. Really, it was, it was enabling new kinds of innovation coming out of uh, the academic world. The founders of RISC-V um, all came from that research lab in Berkeley, uh. and five years later decided to start a new company, and that company is called Sci-5. So that's where, that's where we, we now are leading the RISC-V revolution with the founders of RISC-V, and we're building a new company, but we're also building and defining and driving much of the technology that powers this open cross-ecosystem standard 
that RISC-V is. And so RISC-V as a company, we build RISC-V implementations. And so you could think of, as an analogy, um, TCP IP is an open standard for networking, right. but Cisco builds routers, <laughs> right? And so we, we, are, we, are, we are building implementations of RISC-V, and so uh, we are the best place to go to if you want to build a product around RISC-V technology. And we have a wide range of different implementations with different performance points, size, area, power, trade-offs, things like this. Could you maybe give us a little bit of your background? So I, I teased it in the intro, but you are very well known within the tech and uh, computer world, most notably, well, you might debate this, but uh, for developing the Swift programming language, which I think is the thing underpinning iOS on Mac and Apple and things like that. How, how did you get involved in this space and, and what attracted you to Sci-Fi and the RISC-V idea? Yeah, so so I've been um, kicking around the tech industry for a number of years now. It's amazing how time flies. I spent uh, eleven plus years at Apple, for example. But did a lot of work on fundamental, low level software called compilers, and compilers are the thing that takes the application that a programmer writes and gets it to work with the hardware. And so that instruction set, that 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 interface between hardware and software. Compilers are just on the software side of that, and they they handle that that making it work on the processor for you. And so, um, as part of that, I, I built a number of technologies um, that are all open source, including this thing called LVM and Clang, and a bunch of other compiler technologies that um, underpin and enable a lot of that technology right at the hardware software boundary. There are many things that happened at Apple. Uh, we built a lot of really great things. The Swift programming language is one of them. And so I've done a lot of work in that that space. Since then, I've worked at a number of other places, including Tesla and Google, worked on machine learning infrastructure, large-scale TPUs, a whole bunch of things. And it's all been mostly this systems software working with the hardware. So when I was um, considering joining Sci-Fi, the really exciting thing to me about Sci-Fi is, is a number of things. It's this focus on open technologies, which you kind of have an unfair advantage when it comes to changing the world, right? Because people love open technologies and a lot love the reach that you can have with them. Um, it's this the 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 idea of instead of being on the software side of the hardware software divide, be able to straddle that. And so Sci-Fi is both a software company and a hardware company, and so we're able to innovate by spanning that that gap and really doing things that are quite next generation mm. because. We bring this combination of knowing how the transistors work in your silicon, but also how, how to get programmers to use it. And that's something that um, typically uh, companies have really bifurcated on. <laughs> you have software companies, you have hardware companies, and it's really rare to, to be able to span that gap. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So give us an example of a theoretical customer, or if you want, an actual customer 
who comes to risk five? What are they looking for? What can they, why do they go to you as opposed to someone else? What can they get for, from you in terms of performance, in terms of a product that makes sense for them that from a business standpoint um, can't get from somewhere else? Right, absolutely. So th- there's many different categories to this. Uh, one example is a replacement customer. So somebody's using a product from, for example, MIPS, and they're saying, hey, wow, we're building our technology on a technology stack built by a company in bankruptcy. Maybe that's not a good idea, <laughs> right? Uh, we also have many customers coming to us from ARM designs. And so the ARM, ARM company has a number of CPU designs in their portfolio. And for a variety of reasons, uh, customers are not as happy with that as they used to be. And so replacement of existing products, uh, typically they're looking for something that is, um, you know, solves the same kind of a job as what they were using before, but is better in terms of, Um, the area, the size of the hardware or the power it consumes um, and things like this. And so RISC-V as a technology is better than many of these things out there. It's better designed and engineered, uh, mostly because it's much newer. (laughs) And so the the technology industry has invented a lot of things. And as with any any space, there are mistakes that are made along the way. And RISC-V is a fresh start that allows us to get those things right and be able to draw the best ideas from across the industry into one one system. I think that the other more interesting, exciting part of what Sci-Fi's business is propelled by is differentiated solutions. And so while many people come to us saying like, hey, I want to swap this thing out, (laughs) the, the most fun pieces are that we're able to enable products that nobody else can build. And that happens because we build our processors and our other technologies as kind of as software. And so we build hardware with the spirit of software that is very configurable, dynamic, and you can tune it for the use case. And this allows you to say, hey, well, I want to build you know, an AI-powered thingy that does voice recognition and this stuff. And so we can give you the world's best implementation of that that's really tuned to the use case. And here, we, one of the macro uh, phenomena that's going on today is this thing that many people would call the end of Moore's law. And so the process technology, the fabs, are not, not, not moving at the speed that they used to, and the economics are really shifting. And what this means is this means that there's an increased desire and increased need for custom solutions. And custom solutions can be much more power efficient. They can be more cost efficient. They can be just better for the 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 you know, being part of your your life as a human. And they fit in as hmm. IoT light bulbs or like all these other things. And so that's really driving customization in a way that we haven't seen before. And this is really what Sci-Fi's strength is. So I want to go back to that replacement idea because a big theme running through this entire semiconductors series is the politicization of chips. And of course, we've seen the U.S. put restrictions on China and things like that. I think one of your customers was reported to be Alibaba. So, I mean, is this a way for companies to, I guess, accelerate a reduction in their dependency on things like TSMC chips or maybe Western chips from Intel? Well, so I think that's a complicated topic, and I'm certainly not an expert on that. I think there's many factors that are going on here. Um, RISC-V as an open standard allows collaboration, and that collaboration happens across political boundaries. And so the U.S. and Sci-Fi, for example, is investing a lot in RISC-V. 
Uh, China is also investing a tremendous amount into RISC-V software in particular, and they're starting to look at RISC-V hardware. And so um, from a technology perspective, this just kind of floats all boats. Like this just makes things go faster. The technology curve go that way. In terms of the politicization of um, fabs and things like this, I think it really comes down to the business model of the individual companies. And from SciFive's perspective, we're very happy to work with uh, uh, Samsung and TSMC and multiple different fabs. And uh, for that, for us, it's really about what our customers are looking for and what the products they're trying to build are and trying to find the best possible answer for their their outcome. So the the big fabs that everybody knows. Uh, when it comes to the annual manufacturer, you're their client? Um, generally, the way it works is that we provide technology to other hardware companies. And so um, let me give you an example of this. Um, yeah. uh, we we recently launched, uh, there's an FPGA company called Microchip, and they, they launched a product that incorporates our technology into their product. Um, they package it up, they work with the fabs, they do all of that work. We we are what's called a fabless semiconductor company. And so we provide technology to other companies that then build build a larger product, pull together documentation and software and things like this. And then we enable that product to be built. Um, there are other cases where we actually are the 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 device manufacturer. And so we do have developer boards, for example. And so we'll make little boards that uh, developers can use to write software and work with RISC V. And that's been very popular. I mean, all of this sounds really great, um, and obviously you're making a good case for the technology, but what's what's adoption like? Do you find that anyone is resistant to this new idea, or is everyone um, sort of jumping on board with the customization pitch? Well, so I think that there's different aspects to this. One is RISC-V as a industry trend, and there we see just a complete explosion in, in adoption from kind of the who's who of companies, including Google, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, Samsung, um, Western Digital, also Alibaba, and all kinds of, all kinds of companies are, are working with and doing things with RISC-V. And so I think there's a question of when, when and if does RISC-V take over everything, which I think is an entirely possible future where, you know, you fast forward 100 years from now, it could be RISC-V. And um, and hopefully much sooner than 100 years. <laughs> um, with Sci-5, uh, we're, in, we're in effectively all of the big semiconductors products, and we, we don't talk about our customers specifically, but um, the adoption and the drive we're seeing is, is quite intense. It's a very exciting time right now. So do you have any competitors in the RISC-V space, or is it too early for that, and would you expect them to emerge at some point? Yeah, so so there are other companies that build RISC-V processors. Um, RISC-V as an open standard really enables this, and we encourage that. It depends on what you mean by competitors. So, for example, um, RISC-V is, wi- is widely uh, adopted within the academic context, and so there's many university projects where people are building RISC-V cores. Um, I don't see these as competition. I see these as you know the next generation of engineers that we'd like to hire, um, but you, you could say that they're playing in the same space. Um, many companies are also building uh, small RISC-V cores themselves, and I think that they're playing with the technology in many cases and they're starting to understand it. Um, there are a relatively small number of companies that are commercial, productizing and commercializing RISC-V cores the way we are, and I think that is also great. That's, that's one of the great things about this standard is that you can get different implementations from different companies. 
Um, in comparison, Sci Five has been at it for you know our our team has been at it for ten years. Uh, Sci Five as a company has been at it for five years, and so we're just much further ahead in, than the the pack in terms of the breadth of our portfolio, the maturity of the technology, um, the established customer base, and so I'm very thrilled that our customers love our products, and that's really what I, I and we focus on. So one of the things that's come up a few times in some of our discussions has been. You know, you sort of hinted at it, which is the sort of death of Moore's law, you know, the sort of the the increasing difficulty of the arms race, how much it costs to improve speed, size. And when we've heard from a couple of people, they say things like we ask the question like, okay, what could theoretically upend the dominance of a company like Taiwan Semiconductor? And the answer that a couple of people have have given up is, well, maybe customers don't necessarily need the very fastest chip anymore. Maybe like the sort of traditional metrics of performance that we sort of think about with chips, certain measures of speed and so forth, do not become the key things that uh, people absolutely need. I'm trying to understand a little bit more, like does risk five? does your model sort of create the avenue for a sort of, I get maybe break in the arms race of chips such that the industry can go in a more direction or in a direction that's not just about more expensive, faster chips and offer different value propositions? Well, I think that it's it's hard to paint the entire industry with one brush. Sure. <laughs> so I think that if you look at, um, for example, the Internet of Things, IoT space, for yeah. example, their time to market is worth a lot, right? right? Because a lot of it is, finding product market fit. And so spending three to five years to build a chip is really kind of an untenable place because five years from now, the industry will be changing and you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't really make sense to do that. And so I think that, that that is a pretty big shift in how people think about things from back in yeah. the uh, Windows PC days where Intel would come out with a chip every every so often and it was just a steady, steady march up in performance. Um, on the other hand, I think you look in the server space, for example, and there, there, you're kind of limited by power, and so each each socket in a large scale cloud data center can dissipate roughly 250 watts, and so the question is, how much? How do you get? How much can you get out of that? Right, and so to me, uh, we we as an industry have solved that problem by pushing pushing uh, process technology and chasing from one fab node to the next, which is very expensive, and as you say, it's it's not a particularly scalable approach. The other way to tackle this is to innovate in the hardware. And so what we're seeing now is we're seeing a rise of GPUs and we're seeing a rise of machine learning accelerators and we're seeing a rise of other other accelerators. And to date, they're primarily purpose-built. So I want to accelerate video encoding, <laughs> you know? And so if I want to accelerate video encoding, I can build a box that does video encoding and I can build a chip for video encoding. The far extreme of that is I want a fully general box that can do anything, and that's what you see with typical CPUs. There's a big space in the middle where you say, if, if you're a cloud provider, for example, I, I want to be able to run a wide range of different specialized workloads. And so I want to do a little bit of video encoding. I want to do a little bit of signal processing. I want to do a little bit of uh, machine learning. I want to do a little bit of graphics. I want to do a little bit of this. And so what you can do is you can build what are called heterogeneous computers. And these heterogeneous computers can have accelerators for different domains. 
And assembling those together into one package is something that, you know, RISC-V is a standard and a lot of the ecosystem that we're helping drive, will, it, I think, really changes the nature of compute. And so I think that we as an industry are shifting and it's kind of hard to see the end state from, you know, we're halfway through this transition, but it's a really exciting time. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So going forward, how do we know if people are using RISC-V? So my understanding is that, you know, it, if you're using something from ARM, you have to sign like some sort of licensee agreement and we can kind of figure out who signed those. But I don't think using RISC-V, you necessarily have to disclose what you're doing because it's open source. How, how do we know what adoption actually looks like and, and how, um, how much this gets embedded in the actual industry? Uh, well, so it's it's hard to give get precise metrics. So, for example, Nvidia has uh, proactively said we use RISC V in our GPUs, <laughs> right? And so, if they if they had not said that, then nobody would know. It's just an internal implementation detail, and it's not exposed. And so, um, I, I don't think you'll ever get a true number. But what we can see is the number of uh, members of the Open RISC V Foundation, for example, is just exploding. <laughs> Right. We, we know that the number of design wins coming out of companies like Sci-Fi, for example, is just going exponential. We see, we see, uh, you see the metrics and the sec- the secondary indicators that are, that you can tell that there's there's a lot of momentum and a lot a lot driving this. And so, while it's very difficult to know the the precise number of design wins or the precise number of transistors configured for us five, um, we we know it's it's incredible. So I I have a weird question, but. Um... We've talked a little bit about this on the podcast, the sort of culture around open source technology on Silicon Valley. We've spoken about it with uh, Camille Fournier and people like that. But is it weird to commercialize an open source technology like this? I've seen some people liken RISC-V to Linux. Like, does it does it feel weird to be doing that, or does it feel like this sort of commercialization is what's needed to get that technology uh, rolled out to a wider group? 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I, there are many different ways of looking at this. I've I've worked on open source and open technologies for a couple of decades now. I can I can share some examples of that. So at Apple, for example, we built these compiler tools and these technologies that that application developers use to build their apps, right? Which is a very meta thing. Um, and so uh, Apple is a company that believes in producing value and keeping it proprietary, of course. But even in that context, there was incredible value in making that open and sharing sharing contributions that they were doing with the world because they then were able to benefit from the work that everybody else in the industry was doing. And so that open standard, the open technology, the open source code that was being developed was not the differentiating value for their products. It was the enabling technology that they benefited from, you know, Google used the same technology in their data centers. And like, that was actually great for Apple because, you know, all the work that Google put into it directly benefited Apple and Apple's products. So um, I think that there's a long, long balance of trying to figure out what to open, how best to work and foster communities. With RISC-V, I think I'm seeing very similar results that I saw, I've seen in other domains where, Open has a lot of advantages that are hard to quantify. So, for example, there are, you know, we're all humans, <laughs> and, and humans like to work on things with large scale impact. And so, um, open technologies arguably are, it's easier to draw the best minds into working on open technologies because they end up having larger impact on the world. The way that RISC-V is defined and standardized and, and driven in the, the ecosystem is by an open committee development standardization process. And it's kind of the who's who's of gurus in the industry that are coming together to make sure that the best ideas win. And you get you get a really good result. And it's kind of hard, hard to match that with a company off in the corner that even if they're a massive semiconductor company, they still have only a slice of the the, the bright bright minds in the industry. Right? And so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of nuanced pieces of this, but then also you there has to be a business model, right? We as sci-fi are a for-profit company. We are, <laughs> you know, we're, we're here to build a scalable business that is an amazing an amazing feat by itself. And so the question is, how do you fund and propel and make the open technologies thrive while also having sustainable businesses that you can, you know, pay your engineers to work on the open technology. And that, that divide is often tricky, but if you look, you look to the industry, uh, Red Hat, for example, is a company that was built on Linux and they put tons of engineering into Linux and they build a great services business and they're now a huge part of IBM. Right. Um, So there's many, many of these companies that have found different business models. Um, Google, for example, is, uh, apparently a profitable company, you could say, um, and <laughs> and, they're, and they are built and contribute a tremendous amount to open technologies. And so it's it's all about figuring out the divide. And there's different divides that make sense for different industry sectors and different technologies and different companies. Um, but I think it's a pretty proven model by this point. And and for its worth, I think that open software is much further ahead than open hardware. And so I think that we're really on the leading edge of that for hardware. And I think that. If 10 years from now, it's going to be a completely different world. Uh, well, Chris, that was really, really interesting. And I, I think we're all going to be um, watching what happens with RISC-V and uh, with Sci-Fi for years to come. So thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks, Chris. That was awesome.
So Joe, I'm glad we had Chris on. Definitely a, a little bit different to what we spoke about on some of our other semiconductor podcasts, but I, I think there are two things that probably stand out. One is that idea of risk five as a cheat for the end of Moore's law. Like if you can't eke out any more efficiencies in terms of the actual technology, then maybe you could do it through customization and the way that technology works with the rest of the system. And then I guess the second one is this idea that risk five might actually be a way of um, increasing independence away from some of the big manufacturers. Yeah, no, I thought that was super interesting. And just this like this idea that's like, okay, you have all these companies that could build the chips. You have these end customers that have uh, specific needs. You know, you could, mm. I think like he said, I don't know the exact word, but the idea of like mind share, like people like working on open source products, people like being part of something that's right. um, potentially world changing. So it seems like potentially one of these things where it's like, sure, like the sort of dominant players in the industry, the dominant platforms, x86, ARM, et cetera, aren't going anywhere. But you can very easily, as he describes it, imagine it just continuing to gather steam over the long term. Yeah, um, definitely an interesting one to watch. And I, I guess the issue is who comes out and announces that they're actually using it. So we get a good idea of uh, what adoption actually looks like. Yeah. All right. Well, but no, definitely um, going to have it on my radar. Yeah. Um, this is our gift to Odd Lots listeners demanding more semiconductor co content. Um, hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I'm sure we'll be recording more semiconductor episodes eventually. But for, for now, we're going to move on to some other things, right? I think there's some other stuff going on that we should talk about. In markets? No way. Okay. <laughs> All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. You can follow our guest, Chris Latner, on Twitter. He's at CLatner underscore LLVM. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today, and check out all of our podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.